So this was one of those Sundays where I prepared a sermon and it turned out it was about 15 minutes too long, but I didn't realize this until the first service, so be glad that you came to second service today. Um, real couple of things that, that I want to share with you uh, in this time together. And it all begins with our vision as a church. What is it that God has placed us here to do? Our vision statement is actually written on the front of your flock notes. If you want to turn there and you'll see that it's, it's printed there to, to remind us every single week as to why we're here. We're here to see a glimpse of heaven on earth as the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us, our church, our city, our culture and our world to the glory of God. We believe that on this earth, because Christ has come and his kingdom has been inaugurated, that we're able to see a glimpse of heaven on earth, that the eternal has broken into the temporal, that we are able to see what God's new creation will be like for eternity here today. And this new kingdom, this glimpse of heaven, is is all about gospel transformation. It begins where? With gospel transformation in our own hearts. And that's a profoundly important principle, that as a church, we don't begin our reflections upon why the Lord has put us here with those people over there. Those people over there, they really need the gospel. No, nobody needs the gospel more than the people right here. We begin our reflections upon our vision as a church with a passion to see Jesus bring transformation to our own lives, that we are those who have sinned. We are those who have wandered far from him. Nobody needs grace. Nobody needs salvation more than we do. And we believe that Christ has poured his love into our hearts, that we are receiving the blessing of this grace, and that we ourselves are being changed by it. Now, of course, this gospel has has ripple effects. It's as if Jesus has taken a a stone called grace and hurled it into our souls, and there is a ripple effect from there. And so the transformation that we have enjoyed, that we have been blessed with, takes hold, yes, of us, but then takes hold of our church. Our church is, is nothing more than the gathering of the individuals who attend our church. So as the gospel transforms us individually, so it transforms us corporately. It changes us as a community. From there, we believe that we're called to take this gospel transformation outside of our own walls to our city, our city which is in such need of Jesus, bringing his love through mercy and evangelism, extending from our city into our culture, even then to the ends of the earth. The gospel, which has such personal specificity, has this global extent. And so we believe that God has placed us here. What do we want to see happen? We believe that God has placed us here, that we might be changed by Jesus, and that through us, his love might be made known to the world. It's important for us to have this vision before our eyes. I don't know if you ever tried to complete a jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the box, right? You know, you might make some progress. You might be able to gather certain of the same colors or, you know, one of these people begins with the edges, okay? You might be able to get the edges lined out. But at some point, you're going to have to ask, what am I trying to make here? Is this the New York City skyline? Is this some animal or some pastoral scene? You know, what is it that I'm trying to make? For you to make progress, you need to know what you're making progress toward. And in this instance, and perhaps only this instance, jigsaw puzzles are like the rest of our lives. In that for us to be making progress as a church, we have to know what it is that we're making progress toward. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to reflect upon this vision, seeing a glimpse of heaven on earth. Why four weeks? Because everything we do as a church, everything we do as 
a church falls into one of four categories. Worship, discipleship, care, and missions. So today we begin with worship and reflecting upon how through worship we get this glimpse of heaven on earth. I want to do two things quickly with you. First of all, I want to see what worship is and then talk about how we go about worship here at MPC. What worship is and how we go about it here at MPC. When it comes to defining worship, in some sense it's a bit of a a fool's fool's errand. There's a a famous theologian from the 16th century who said that every definition is dangerous. Every definition is dangerous. Why? Because when you're taking a concept that is grand and beautiful and complex and you try to whittle it down to say something about it, to to define it with, with brevity, you inevitably run the risk of losing more than you've actually contributed to your understanding of the situation. But nevertheless, we're going to dive in with a definition. And this is actually printed on the front of your bulletin, front of your worship guide this morning. Uh, We would see worship here at MPC and we would define it that, that true worship happens when we celebrate God by enjoying who he is and what he's done for us. True worship happens as we celebrate God by enjoying who he is and what he's done for us. Let's walk through that definition quickly together, starting off with this idea that true worship happens when we celebrate God. If you look at Psalm 100, we see that eight times in these five short verses, we are commanded to celebrate God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve him with gladness. Come into his presence, how? With singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. We are called to come into his presence and celebrate him. And celebrate him. See, we understand as we approach worship, it's not that we come into worship to, you know, we'll talk about giving God glory. We don't come to give God something he doesn't already have. It's not that the Lord is in need of something from us or that he is in need of some encouragement, you know? Yes, Lord, you're awesome. You, you be God today, you know? <laughs> kind of like you're sending your, you know, kindergartner off to school. The Lord does not call us to worship that we might give him something he is lacking. Rather, he calls us to come and recognize what he already has. We're to celebrate his greatness. Not contribute to his greatness, but, but celebrate it. I think of it like... Um, when a team wins the Super Bowl and they, you know, they, they get a bus and they drive around the city and they have an open top and they parade the trophy and all the fans come out to celebrate. Now, their celebration doesn't help the team be great. The team has already demonstrated its greatness in their victory. The fans are there that day not to so much cheer their team on that they might be great, but rather to celebrate the fact that they have already become great. And so it is that we are commanded eight times in these five short verses to come into God's presence and celebrate the fact that he is great. He is not in need of our encouragement. He's not in need of us to stroke his ego. Rather, he is calling us to come and recognize ultimate reality, to see truth in his greatness. How do we do this? the rest of the definition. We celebrate his greatness by doing two things, by enjoying who he is and by enjoying what he's done for us. Let's think of the the first of these. We celebrate his greatness by enjoying who he is. Look at verse 3 where it says, know that the Lord, he is God. 
Know that the Lord, he is God. In other words, as we come into God's presence, we don't start with coming into his presence and and thanking him for for all that he's done for us. Rather, we start by coming into his presence and recognizing that he is intrinsically worthy of our worship. You understand that if, if God had never done anything for us, if God had never sent Christ, if he had never lavished his grace out upon us, he would still be deserving of our worship. He is intrinsically worthy of praise in and of himself as, a, as the definitional thing of, of beauty. And so we come and we approach God celebrating who he is because he is an end in and of himself. I think of it, perhaps you, you visited with family over this holiday season. And I hope you visited with some family that was just a blessing to go and see. You know, visiting family isn't always that way. We're realistic, we understand. But but certain family members, you go see them and it's just great to see them. There's a sense of joy, a sense of rest almost, stillness. Is is it well with your soul to be with them? I get that feeling, you know, when my parents come and visit and they visited over Thanksgiving. And and when they arrived, I didn't say, Mom, it's great you're here because now you can make breakfast for me. Right? I wouldn't dare say that to my mother. (laughs) But why, why didn't I say that? Because I wasn't glad that she was here in order that she might do something for me. I was glad that she was here, that being with them was the end in itself. That I enjoy that time with them because I love them and they love me and we're in relationship. And that's what it's like when we enter into God's presence. We don't come firstly to, to get things from him. We come celebrating because he in himself is an end with which we are taken that we are pleased to be in his presence, that it is well with our souls in a deeper and more profound way just to see his power and celebrate it, to see his, his wisdom in this uncertain world, to see his goodness in this evil world. We come into presence and we know, verse 3, that he is, is God. That's how we celebrate it. But we don't just celebrate who he is, we also celebrate what he's done for us. And it is good for us to celebrate what he has done for us. And we see this again in verse 3, if you look down with me. Yes, know that, Lord, he is good. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This verse, having called us to just see God's intrinsic greatness, then points out, secondly, what he's done for us. So it's he who's made us. He's he's the creator God. He is the one without whom there would still be nothing. But he is also the redeeming God. He is the God who we can say, we are his. We are the sheep of his pasture. That having created us in the beauty of Eden and seen us ruin it, Utterly, He has rescued us from our sin to be in relationship with him. And so, yes, we celebrate not just who he is, but what it is that he has done for us. And I wonder if we have that sense of excitement, that joy of our salvation that the scriptures speak about. Uh, a wife of one of our elders often says to me that she can still smell the singes of hell on her for how close she was, to, to, uh, how close she is to deserving hell. And yet, in light of that, she's able to see the beauty of grace that is hers. 
I wonder if that, that shock, that, that, that joy of, I cannot believe that I am one of his, that I am one of the sheep of his pasture, is, is ours this morning. And it ought to be, and then we ought to celebrate that. We ought to celebrate what it is he has done for us. It's the same reason, you know, you have kids and you make your kids write thank you letters after Christmas. Now, why do you do that? Part of you does it, like honest parenting moment, because, you know, you just kind of feel like, you know, you really ought to do this, right? And you don't want to face your own mother if your kids haven't written a thank you note to them, okay? It's kind of like, I'm going to make you do this to make me look better, okay? And that's a constant battle in parenting, right? But the real reason you do it, the real motivation for doing that is because you want to teach them that when you thank someone for their kindness to you, your joy and their joy is multiplied that you are blessed when you thank someone for your, their kindness to you, and they are blessed when you thank them for their kindness to you, that it cements a relationship and is, is a beautiful thing to celebrate kindness. And so we come to our Lord writing, you know, eternal thank you notes, not out of guilt like a parent, but out of joy, because we know that as we do so, um, our joy is increased, and, and his joy is increased as we celebrate at what he's done for us. So that's what worship is, a celebration of God's greatness. How do we do this? By enjoying who he is, by enjoying what it is that he's done for us. Secondly, though, and briefly, how is it that we tackle this uh, endeavor of worship here as a church? Because it's important to note that in one sense, of course, worship is all of life. You can celebrate God's greatness by enjoying who he is and what he's done for you in every arena of life. When you're on your own, when you're with your family, when you're at work, when you're doing the routine things of your day, you can offer that as an act of worship. But there's a special way in which when we gather together as God's people, corporately like this, that God has called us to come and worship him. And how is it that as a church we approach this time of corporate worship? I've got four words for you. Let's run through them quickly. First word as we think about how to worship as a church is the word ordinary. The word ordinary. And by that I'm referring to what we would call the ordinary means of grace. We believe that God has commanded us to worship him, but he has also commanded us how we ought to worship him. He has told us what it is he wants us to do and told us how it is he wants us to do it. And he lays out in his word that his word and prayer and fellowship and the sacraments are those means by which we can come into his presence and worship him. And so, as a church, we, don't, we self-consciously don't do anything crazy innovative. We don't do anything sort of um, for the kind of shock value. We prioritize and are excited about these ordinary means of grace as, as, the, way, as, as the, the means by which we're able to come into his presence and worship. And so this is why we don't do certain things that in and of themselves are fine. For example, drama and skits, okay? Great things, and do them in different contexts. But David and I will not be acting out anything next week. Thank you, Jesus. Um, (laughs) Why? Because that's not one of the means the Lord has given his gathered people for his worship. Something ordinary. There's something old school about how we approach things here. Word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship. Second word that we'd think about as a church is the word participatory. Participatory. Understand that when we come to worship, we are not here to observe worship. 
heaven forbid we're here to observe the professionals. You know, Jesus, save us from that kind of mindset. We are here to be actively and fully engaged with all our hearts and all our minds and all that takes place during this time. And so our hearts and our minds are to be engaged as as the word is read. We're to read it along. As the word is preached, we're to listen and consider it and test it by the word. As we pray, we don't just listen to David praying. We pray along with him and we add our amen because these are the prayers of, of our hearts and of our lips as well. When we sing together, we sing with loud and glad lips as a response to hearts that have been changed by his grace. When we enjoy the sacrament together, we don't just go through the motions of a routine or a ritual. We are engaged in in receiving them as God's grace to us. It is an act of participation whereby we invest all that we are into this hour and some minutes. And I wonder if we show up with that readiness. I call Sunday game day, right? It's game day. Now, in a way, yes, I get up and preach, so it's game day in a special way. But it's game day for all of us. It's game day for all of us. It's the most actively engaged day of the week for us to show up in readiness to come and celebrate God's greatness, enjoying who he is, enjoying what he's done for us. So that's the second word, participatory. Third word, very churchy word, is the word liturgical. What did I mean by the word liturgical? Quite simply, I'm referring to the order or flow of our worship. If you have your bulletin there, where's my bulletin? Uh, pick up your bulletin and uh, let's just uh, talk through this together because uh, you'll have noticed, of course, if you've been here any time at all, that we have a very set routine, a very set liturgy of how we go about worship. Uh, every single week we begin with uh, the prayer of invocation. This is asking the Lord to be with us during this time, because if he is not with us, we are wasting our time. We move from that into a call to worship, readying our hearts uh, for what it is we've been brought here to do. From there, we always move into a time of praise, singing songs of praise. What are we doing in this time? We're recognizing that before we get to what God has done for us, he is intrinsically worthy of our praise. He's intrinsically worthy of our worship just because of who he is. Flip over to the next page. After these songs of praise, we always have a time of confession. Recognizing God's greatness, we recognize how far we have fallen from that standard. Recognizing his holiness, we recognize our own sin. And so we come confessing that to him. Every single week, what do we follow the confession of sin with? The assurance of pardon. Why? Because the gospel does not say to us that confess your sins and maybe, hopefully, in the end it will be enough. The gospel says if you confess your sins and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so every week we have a verse from Scripture of God assuring us of the grace that is ours in Jesus. From there, we always move into the giving of the peace. This is a a consequence of of the gospel message. It's not just a time where we kind of awkwardly say hello to a neighbor, right? It's a time where we, recognizing the grace that has been given to us, enjoy it, enjoy the peace we have with God, and extend that peace to others. It's like a cosmic moment of shalom in our congregation, where we recognize that it is well with our souls. It is well with our souls. 
From there, we sometimes have testimony moving into the pastoral prayer, recognizing that God is not just the God who has saved us, but is the God who is interested in the details of our lives and wants to know about our struggles and our sicknesses. And so throughout this first half of the service, what we've done is, in our liturgy, we've, we've rehearsed the gospel together. We've walked through the gospel message from his greatness to our sin, to our forgiveness, to the peace we have, to the God who is interested in our lives. We are walking through the gospel message in the very order that we have constructed. We then move into the sermon, and every single sermon ever preached from this pulpit needs to be another rehearsal of the gospel. And if, it, if, it, if it's not, then it's one of the few things that, that, that's serious enough you should leave the church over. If this pulpit is no longer a place where the gospel is preached, you, you, ought to, you ought to leave this church and go to a church where the gospel is preached. Every single sermon should, in one way or another, be a rehearsal of the gospel. I say this to you, I've said this before, you know I only have one sermon, and his name is Jesus. Now each week I come up with a different way to talk about him, and there are a million applications of his love to us. But every week the punchline is the same. It's Jesus and the gospel and his grace. And so having walked through the gospel in the the front section of our service, the very order of it, we then walk through the gospel again in this time of preaching and giving attention to the word. From there, sometimes we celebrate the sacraments, sometimes meaning once a month we'll celebrate the sacraments that the Lord has given us. Move into the the song of sending uh, and the dismissal and benediction, recognizing that the Lord has the church gathered here and then he scattered us from here to be his light into this world, sending us from this place to be witnesses for uh, for him. And so this term liturgical gets at this idea that the, the very order in which we do things is designed that our worship would be a rehearsal of the gospel. I want you to leave here every week having been reminded of that story several times and in, and in several and in several ways. So that's the third word, liturgical. Now, the fourth word, I want to sort of draw a line of demarcation between the first three and the fourth. The first three, uh, namely uh, ordinary and participatory and liturgical, uh, we would believe that those should characterize all worship everywhere. All worship everywhere. I mean, that's a grand statement, but, but I mean it. From here to Cambodia to Cuba to Kenya, all worship should conduct itself in that manner. Should be focusing upon the word and those ordinary means. Should be an engagement of our hearts and our minds. Should be a liturgical, and, and it might look differently, but a liturgical rehearsal of the gospel. All worship should look that way. This fourth word characterizes our worship but it ought not characterize all worship. It's how we've contextualized worship here in this area. And that word is our favorite word, blended. Blended. Here we have blended worship. What does that mean? It means that we want to fuse the best of the old and the new into our worship experience. And so we'll sing songs that are hundreds of years old. And we'll sing songs that were written within the last year. Songs that speak of God's truth, uh, songs that echo the beauty of the scriptures, we will take them old or new and incorporate them into our worship service. And we'll take instruments that have been used for a long time or instruments that have not been used for such a long time in the church, and we will incorporate them into one worship experience. So we'll have the organ, and then we'll have guitar. 
Mike was threatening we might even have banjo one week. Yeah? Okay, so never in history. Have we had a banjo in our 70-year history? Okay. We have? Okay. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> we have organ. We have the banjo. <laughs> um, we have piano. We have strings. We have guitars. We have all sorts of things incorporated into this one worship experience. Uh, during seasons like Advent, Easter, special times, this guy wears a robe, okay? The rest of the year, he doesn't wear a robe, okay? We incorporate best of old and new into one worship experience. Now, a couple things about this. First of all, the term blended is, is helpful in that it points us toward the fact that we're not just trying to do both in a disjointed way, meaning that we want our services to have a flow and a momentum to them so that some weeks might feel more contemporary and some weeks might feel more traditional, or we might do a more traditional piece in a, in a, in a, with uh, contemporary instruments, or we might do more contemporary songs with the organ, which we actually do, do a lot around here, because we don't want it to feel like, you know when you're driving and you miss a gear? Okay? We, we don't want the worship service to feel disjointed. We want it to have a, a flow. And so in different weeks, we try, we try different things. Two things about the blended approach. First thing, it ensures that nobody's happy. <laughs> it ensures no one's happy because we all have preferences and we all have expectations, as Mike was talking about earlier. And these things are good. You know, your, your preferences are good. It, it, it's good for you to be passionate about particular things. There is no sin there. But it means if you have a preference for more traditional, you can be disappointed the weeks it feels more contemporary. And if you have a preference for more contemporary, you can be disappointed the weeks it feels more traditional. And it's just the way it goes. It guarantees, in a sense, that no one's happy. But, but secondly, and more importantly, the, the reason we, uh, we do it this way, <laughs> uh, the reason we guarantee no one's happiness, is because we're saying something very important when we embrace blended worship. And what we're saying is, the primary thing here is not my preference. The primary thing here is that I am part of a great and diverse worshiping community. And so I am here not to have my preference served, but to celebrate God's greatness by enjoying who he is and what he's done for us. And so I appreciate the fact that there's a diversity amongst our congregation. In all reality, I sometimes laugh because uh, the blend we do, if this is the spectrum of worship, we blend like this, you know? Um, never forget being in Cambodia. This was such a powerful experience. In Cambodia, when you do group prayer, everyone prays out loud at the same time, okay? So it's like, well, we pray, let's pray, let's pray. We all bow our heads, and then we all start speaking out loud. I found that so difficult. For this emotionally repressed Scottish Presbyterian, there was just something so difficult about that. I don't, I don't know why. I just found that hard, right? Um, uh, you know, wherever you travel in the world, they'll worship very differently. So we recognize that we are blending, we are fusing a small amount of the spectrum. But that's an important statement that we're making, honoring each other in our worship. Not putting our prefer- own preferences first, but putting uh, the overall life of the community as, as our priority. So what is worship? A celebration of God's greatness. We enjoy who he is. We enjoy what he's done for us. How do we tackle it here at MPC? By being committed to these ordinary means, to the word, prayer, fellowship, to the sacraments. By being committed to, to corporate participation. By being committed to a simple liturgy that will rehearse the gospel. And by being committed to, to blended worship, where we seek to take 
the best of all in you and enjoy honoring one another's preferences. As we do this, we get a taste, a glimpse of heaven on earth. How so? Because right now, in heaven itself, songs of praise are being sung to the king. And during this time, as I said at the beginning of the service, we pull back that curtain and we add our voices to the harmony and we participate in this great eternal activity of the church. You understand that we talk about worship first before discipleship, care, and missions because worship is our our ultimate and our eternal end. All the other things exist. We disciple, we do care, we do missions because worship doesn't exist. We do those things unto worship that more and more we might be a people who have been changed by his grace, transformed by Christ and living lives to his glory. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. As I do so, I'd ask our elders to come to the front and uh, ready themselves to, to serve the Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, which, which calls us to come and see how much you love us and just be taken with you in response, just to be pleased with all that you are and all that you've done for us in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would make this more and more true of our community. It is true, and we ask that it would become more and more of our experience that as a people, we would gladly give ourselves away during this time, offering sacrifices not of, um, you know, the bloody sacrifices of, of rams and goats and bulls, but a sacrifice of praise through lips that reflect changed hearts. We long for this, Lord, to be a place um, where your name is, is celebrated. Lord, I pray you'd help us to do this as, as a church as we reflect upon how we apply these principles here in this local congregation. Just give us the, the wisdom and the humility uh, to uh, pursue this well, all to your own honor and to your own glory, we pray. In Christ's matchless name, amen.